Well, good morning, you faithful, deeply committed people who are strong and courageous and will weather any sort of weather. We are, you are among God's elect that you are here today, and we are delighted uh, to, to see you. I, I, I happen to love this weather, um, but I, I, we've got a couple of our kids that live in Southern California now. And so they've been telling us about this heat wave going on in Southern California. And finally, uh, because I'm such a patient, kind father, I said, I do not want to talk to you till May. I don't want to hear any more about it. We can re-engage in May. I happen to love 30 below weather. And a few other things that I won't mention. Um, We are in Mark chapter 5. Grab your Bibles, take out your Bibles, Mark chapter 5. Let me set it up this way. Jesus is the most powerful person who has ever lived. And he's the most loving. So the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry, mostly his ministry, are full of stories of both Jesus' incredible power and authority and Jesus' incredible love, amazing grace. Now today we come to Mark chapter 5 as we continue this series called Follow Me in the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 5, we have three of the best, three of the, the, the best known of these stories that really illustrate both Jesus' power and Jesus' love. We're going to see Jesus deliver a demon-possessed man. Jesus heal a woman who's been bleeding, hemorrhaging for years, and Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. So, so three stories, Jesus delivering, Jesus healing, and Jesus raising. Now I want you to get that structure because this is a longer section. We're going to look at the entire chapter today. It's 43 verses. And yes, I want you to get to know the people in these stories. I want you to feel their pain, their problems, which are significant. But I especially want you to know, love, and worship Jesus. Because these three stories all point to something we've got to constantly keep before us. Jesus can do anything. Jesus can love anyone. No one can do what Jesus can do, and no one loves like Jesus loves. So let me illustrate that with the first. We're going to read beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 20. So this first story takes up almost half of the chapter. They went across the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gezerines. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and, no, cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Jesus had been saying, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, 
What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion, a Roman army legion was 6,000 soldiers. So this man was possessed by a whole lot of demons. And actually this suggests there are way more demons than we tend to realize. Let's keep going, verse 10. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number. Now, we don't know if this was like a community or community's co-op or if these were animals that were being raised as food for the Roman legions, the armies in the area, but this is a large herd, 2,000 animals. And we read, they rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off, reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed. Luke tells us he went around naked and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Hey, Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Jesus, would you leave? As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, uh, that's a term for the ten cities or villages on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, how much Jesus had done for him and all the people, well, frankly... Like you and me, they, would have, they were amazed. Now look at this map. Let's kind of get oriented. Um, this is a topographical map showing the terrain of the area around the Sea of Galilee. The blue is the Sea of Galilee right there in the middle. So what verse 1 tells us is that Jesus went across the lake or the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the sea. And so we see where Jesus was. Now, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, unlike the western side, was largely Gentile, not Jewish. So it's not surprising that there are pigs being farmed, pigs being raised there. And pigs, according to the Old Testament, were notoriously unclean and uneatable. So when Jesus goes from the west to the east here, to the eastern side, Jesus is a missionary choosing to enter unclean territory that's um, habitated by an unclean, demon-possessed man who lives in an unclean tomb and is surrounded by unclean animals. So we see all this right in the beginning. But what I want you to note is that Jesus loves all people, and when you love all people, you are willing to do what? You are willing to cross boundaries. You are willing to take risks. 
You are willing to do what's uncomfortable, a little dangerous, go to the ghetto. That's exactly what Jesus is doing when he goes from the west to the east here. Now what this map shows and what I like is how steep the eastern slope of the Sea of Galilee is. And in our passage in verse 13, what we are told is that the pigs rush down a steep bank. And, and, and we see that here in this topographical map. Now let me go on. Let me show you a couple pictures. Uh, in, in the background there near the top um, are caves. Now, beyond the caves, uh, the Sea of Galilee. So what we have here are caves on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that could have doubled as tombs and could have been where Legion lived. Let me show you another picture here. You get this a little better. There, there's the type of caves we have. Often were used as tombs uh, way back. And we maybe have just seen the very tomb Legion lived in. We don't know. Now what we do know is that in the first couple of verses here, Mark gives us a whole lot of detail about what this man, this demon-possessed man called Legion was like. And basically, what Mark tells us is he was an absolute terror. He was a terror to himself, and he was a terror to others. We have minds that we think with. We have bodies that we act with. We have souls that we emote, that we connect, that we worship God with. Typically, though, when people are in a bad place like this man was in a bad place. We treat the mind and we treat the body. But we don't know what to do with the soul. This man's soul was controlled by demons and nobody knew what to do. Demons, according to God's word, are fallen angels. Satan, the Old Testament tells us, became proud though he was created in perfection and rebelled against God, wanted to usurp God's authority, and Satan was cast out of heaven. Uh, other angels that aligned with Satan were also cast out of heaven, and they became demons, these demons. And interestingly, the battlefield, the cosmic battlefield, shifted from heaven to earth. And that's what we see in our passage. And 2,000 years later, today, the battlefield is still earth. Now, the Bible teaches us that Christians, that is, followers in Christ, cannot be possessed, controlled, or owned by demons. But they can be influenced. So, later in the Gospels, Jesus will say to Peter, get behind me. Satan, because at that moment, Peter was under the sway or the influence of a demon. But the horrible biblical reality is that non-Christians can be demon-possessed. And this man was. But we focus on minds and bodies. And we always have in culture after uh, culture. 
And so we tend to believe, especially today, that our problems can be solved by education or medicine. But not this guy. Sometimes our souls are tormented by demons. And the only solution is Jesus. And that's exactly what we have here. So in our story, this man falls on his knees before Jesus and and cries out, uh, Son of the Most High God, which is an expression of deity. It's a statement of deity. But this doesn't mean this guy is worshiping God. This means the demons have taken over the man's central nervous system and his speech and are now speaking through him and are, are, are trying to control Jesus by a mistaken ancient custom which went, if you could speak a spirit's name, you could control that spirit. Now these demons know who Jesus is. Their Christology, if you will, is spot on. But they don't love Jesus. They hate Jesus. And they are going to hell. And they know they are going to hell. In Luke's account of the same story, uh, Luke has the demons repeatedly asking Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. So here they're saying, Jesus, let's do something else. Uh, But think about this for just a moment. You can know who Jesus is. You can spend your whole life in the church. You can be raised in a Christian family, and you can go to hell. And so these demons beg Jesus for a temporary reprieve. Jesus, see the pigs? Cast us into the pigs. And Jesus does. And the pigs... And many commentators believe the demons are destroyed in the lake, in the Sea of Galilee. Now, now please, let let me just comment. This is not about Jesus being insensitive to animals. Uh, This is not about, oh, man, you Christians believe in cruelty to animals. No, no, no. By the way, this was the demon's idea. But what it does illustrate when when you think about this is the tremendous importance of a human soul any soul now God wants us to love both pets and people but there is a priority and people are the priority Christ will die for people But the townspeople here interestingly have this backward and they love their pigs more than this person, so they ask Jesus to leave. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. But how many of us are are, are just like that? We're way more concerned about pursuing financial gain, material comfort. Man, man, this is our our industry here, this co-op 2,000 pigs. And we're way more concerned about uh, uh, making the dollar than pursuing spiritual gain. Uh, Jesus, thanks, but would you get on the boat and would you leave? 
And all this happens. The, the pigs rush into the sea. And our passage tells us that legion, this former legion, this man formerly possessed by this demon, is totally, completely transformed by Jesus. And in verse 15 in our passage, we read, there he is, he's sitting, he, he's dressed, and he's in his right mind. And Luke tells us he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of discipleship. It's a picture of complete and total restoration, reconciliation. The deepest needs of his soul had been touched by Jesus with huge implications. Follow me for his mind and his body. No one, no one can do what Jesus can do. What I want you to also see is that no one, uh, and no one is beyond the grace, beyond the love of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, this man was one of the most despicable, one of the most evil men in the entire Middle East. But Jesus loved him, Jesus saved him, Jesus transformed him. No one is beyond the, the power of Jesus. No one is beyond the love and the mercy of Jesus. You may have huge, overwhelming regrets. Uh, you may look back and, and bemoan terrible decisions you've made, or you may be the victim of another's terrible uh, decisions. It may be alcohol, it may be adultery, it may be uh, abuse. Some of the things we're trying to go after in, in our support groups, and if you need help in these areas, man, I want to encourage you to get into one of our support groups. And if this passage means anything... It means Jesus has the power and the love to deliver us from anything if we'll turn to him. And so over the years, part of my privilege as a pastor is I have seen heroin addicts completely and totally transformed by Jesus. Alcoholics, completely, totally transformed by his power and his love. Marriages that were, that were just awful, totally transformed. People lost in false religions or atheistic hedonism or arrogant self-righteousness, completely, totally transformed by this Jesus. No one is beyond the power of Jesus. No one is beyond the love of Jesus. This passage, this story demonstrates this. And this is why, precisely why, Jesus Christ will go to the cross, die in our place for our sins, to save men like this. So not surprisingly, at the end of our story, uh, G, or Legion begs Jesus to go with him. Hey, Jesus, I want to be with you and the boys. Man, I want to be under your teaching all the time. Man, I, I just want to hang around church. And Jesus says, no, I've got a better plan for you, Legion, because you need to understand that all of life is war. It's a spiritual war. It's a, it's a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. And I need you to go back into the battle. I need you to go to the front lines. And I need you to move around the Decapolis, these 10 cities on the eastern side. And I, I need you to tell your family doesn't mention friends, didn't have friends, and tell your communities about all that God has done for you. Jesus' power 
and his mercy, Jesus' love. In other words, Jesus is asking this formerly despicable, evil, demon-possessed man to be a missionary, just as Jesus has been a missionary in going across the lake. Now let's go on. Let's go to the second story. The second story that also illustrates Jesus transforming power and love. Let's pick it up in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, now he goes back to his headquarters on the western side, probably landing near Capernaum. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now as a synagogue ruler, Jairus was a spiritual giant in his community, a a spiritual leader. As a synagogue ruler, he was in charge of the administrative and and spiritual aspects of his local, his community uh, synagogue. So he was like a a, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, all rolled into one. He may have been a Pharisee. So when Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, he's taking a huge political risk. Grown men in the first century didn't fall at other men's feet. And Pharisees never fell at Jesus' feet. But Jairus does because he's desperate. His daughter is dying. In verse 42, we'll get there in a little bit. We are told she's 12 years old. Think sixth grader. He's desperate, but he's also humble. And apparently he believes there's something to this Jesus because he says, if you put your hands on her, she will be healed. Now let me stop for a moment. As a father of three daughters, I I cannot imagine the pain, the anguish, the, the fear that Jairus feels. Death among children was so prevalent in the first century world. And, and I happen to think that of all the pain on this planet, the, the loss of a child is just about the most acute pain there is. Children should never precede their parents in death. I can't imagine what Jairus is feeling right now, how desperate he is. But what also comes through is that this guy was a strong man. He was an honorable man. He was a man who clearly and deeply loved his daughter. He cared for, he prayed for, he protected his daughter. Jairus was a family man. He goes to Jesus for his daughter. This was a a father who told his daughter she was beautiful. This was a father who read God's word, the Old Testament, to his daughter. This was a father who taught his daughter how to pray. Now I today tell my sons-in-law, in in love, of course, that they are thieves. (laughs) You guys have stolen my daughters. And they roll their eyes, but my, my point is, man, I still love my daughters. 
And fathers, if you have daughters, you, you treat them like gold. Jairus did. And so in an incredible, I mean counter-cultural act of humility, uh, Jairus falls before Jesus and says, Jesus, come. And, and I love what we read in the next verse, verse 24. We read, Jesus went with Jairus. Now, Jesus went to the unclean eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and here Jesus went with Jairus to his home in the worst moment of Jairus' life. Jesus shows up. Jesus is willing to engage, to, to get involved. Uh, here we see Jesus' love. Jesus went with Jairus as Jairus' heart was breaking. Jesus got that. But suddenly, this story, this second story, gets interrupted, and Mark introduces a third story. A third story that also illustrates the same point, Jesus transforming power and love. So let's read this third story that starts in the second half of verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She had spent all that she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. Luke tells us it's Peter talking here, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now like Legion in the first story, this woman is a pathetic soul living a pathetic life. Now, unlike Jairus, she's nameless. And she's at the opposite end of the social spectrum from Jairus, who was way over here, and she's way over here. She had been bleeding for 12 years, we're told, which is as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. And no treatment, not, not, any, not a single treatment had worked, and along the way she had gone broke. You may know some people like that. A big, huge medical uh, deal comes along and, and it keeps going or another crisis of sorts and, and they can't shake it and they end up losing everything. That's this woman. But in addition, her story is more tragic because according to the Old Testament, this kind of bleeding would make her unclean, untouchable. So, Possibly, this woman had not been touched by a human in 12 years. She was unclean. Possibly, not hugged, not kissed for 12 years. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't be in groups of people. If she had been married, possibly, 
her husband would have divorced her. Her children would have been forced to stay away. Stay away. You see, it's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to suffer alone. And this woman suffered and suffered alone. Pitiful. Yet, surprisingly, instead of collapsing in self-pity and resentment and, and bitterness, she remained hopeful and became convinced that Jesus could heal her. So she does the unthinkable. She pushes through the crowd and touches Jesus, and she is immediately, miraculously healed. And we're back to the beginning. No one can do what Jesus does. Yet, yet because Jesus is also loving and no one loves like Jesus is lo- Jesus is looking to connect with her, uh, uh, to build a relationship with her, to affirm her. So Jesus asks, who touched me? Who touched me? You see, Jesus always elevates love above the law, always elevates grace above guilt. And in our passage in verse 34, when they finally meet, Jesus does something that is, in addition, incredibly loving and sensitive. He calls her daughter. I will be Jairus to you. It's the only time in the Gospels Jesus calls a woman daughter. This woman unclean, nameless, outcast, abandoned. So when Jesus calls her daughter, Jesus vividly and dramatically demonstrates his love for all women. All women. No one loves like Jesus loves. And some of you perhaps are just like this woman. You don't have a gyrus. You're alone. And you feel dirty and inadequate and unclean. And you're confused. And you're hurting, bleeding spiritually. And you may, frankly, have all sorts of people around you. But you identify with this woman. Hear God's word. When she reaches out and touches Jesus, she does not make him unclean. He makes her clean. Spiritually. Physically. She doesn't bring Jesus down. He brings her up. Don't misunderstand. It wasn't her touch. It was her faith. Jesus says, daughter, it's your faith that has healed you. So do you see what faith here is? Do you understand faith? Faith is reaching out to Jesus. When you're in crisis, when you're in pain, when you're confused. It's trusting him. It's being confident in him. It's believing he is who he claimed to be. So faith 
reaches out to Jesus so the power and love of Jesus can be unleashed in your life. And like this woman, all of us are unclean before God, but Jesus will go to the cross and die, uh, as I said, uh, in our place for our sins to make us clean. When we come to him by faith, as this woman comes to Jesus by faith, and he becomes at that moment our savior, our healer, our protector, our identity. And he calls us daughter, son. Now we've got to keep moving. Mark now returns to the second story, story that got interrupted to Jairus and his daughter. And, and apparently, Mark interrupts the one story or sandwiches uh, the second story with this third story to help us understand that this nameless woman's faith is exactly the type of faith that Jairus, the religious leader, needs. Because both of these stories, the second and third stories, are about the conflict of, of fear versus faith in the face of crisis, death and, or disease and death. Both the woman and Jairus choose to respond in faith, not fear. Fear says it won't work, it won't help. Prayer doesn't work, Jesus won't help. Faith, however, says I got to get to Jesus. Uh, Nothing else will work. Faith always reaches out to Jesus in crisis, desperation, loneliness. So let's begin reading verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Highly sensitive, don't you think? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. So here we see this tension, uh, this conflict, uh, faith versus fear. Jesus is putting his finger on it. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, when Jesus here says asleep, he's not denying the reality of her death. Everything in us, everything here tells us she died. Jesus is using sleep as a figure of speech to say that her death is temporary, just like sleep is temporary. Let's keep reading. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand, another act of tenderness, and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished, and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Can you imagine what mom and dad are thinking? How cool would it have been to be there? Mark tells us they're completely, totally astonished. Their precious little daughter, Luke says their only daughter, 
has been supernaturally, miraculously raised from the dead, and mom and dad are astonished. No one can do what Jesus does. No one loves like Jesus loves. Crazy power, crazy love intersect in one person and one person only, Jesus Christ. No wonder Jesus says, don't be afraid, believe. Don't be afraid, believe. Now, friends, we desperately need this Jesus. We desperately need 2014, Mark chapter 5. Life can be so discouraging. Life can be so difficult, so overwhelming. It's so easy to falter. Yet God is a miracle-working God. All three of these healings are instantaneous, total, completely supernatural. Yes, we live in a sinful, fallen world full of demons, story number one, disease, story number two, death, story number three. And life is a battle, a spiritual battle. Sin makes us crazy, like the legion, unclean, like the woman, impotent, like the parents. Now, does Jesus cast out every demon? Does Jesus heal every disease? Does Jesus raise every child from the dead? No. Is the problem our lack of faith? No. We leave those choices to Jesus. Jesus is the most loving, the most powerful person who has ever lived. And here Mark is telling us Jesus has power and authority over demons and and disease and death. And if he has that kind of power, he has power over everything and anything in your life. So let me encourage you to be like Jairus and invite Jesus into your home. Because like the little girl, all of us one day will die. And if we believe in Jesus, we will be raised with Jesus and spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Let's pray as our worship team gets ready to come back and lead us in worship. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for all you have given us in your son, Jesus. Thank you for your power and your love Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us and and, and deliver us from our fear. Give us the grace to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.